Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to pop in quick here for an update on our listener support challenge underway. We set ourselves the goal of adding 100 new listener supporters, and I am blown away by your generosity. We've had 27 supporters come on board since we issued the challenge. Thank you. A garden does not grow overnight. It grows over a season, and our season is growing nicely. We have a ways to go, but I know we'll meet our goal. I know you hear appeals all the time, especially in this particularly politicized moment, and I really appreciate the urgency of that. I appreciate, too, that we all come to what we value in different ways. I spent this last weekend handwriting thank you notes to those of you who've supported these conversations you value. In these notes, I write, In a world and at a time when our individual impact can feel really questionable, I want to express to you that your support of these civil garden conversations this year have meant the world to us. The world. Your contributions to these conversations, coupled with your own impulse to garden, have actively encouraged, engaged, expanded, and empowered gardeners around the world who are making a difference to their environments, economies, communities, and the communal well-being of us all. So from my garden to yours, thank you. Together, we plant the changes and grow the world we want. If you would like to join us as a listener supporter of this impactful work and these conversations, please do. Please do now. Go to the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and follow the links by clicking the support button. And thank you. I am so pleased that this collaborative growing endeavor now offers you a conversation today about the power of collaborative growing, from bees in the city to goats and good food in community. Enjoy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Farmer Meg, as she is fondly known, is a homestead educator, a CSA grower, a community calorie crop participant, and the author of Rooftop Beekeeper. Meg has been farming in New Jersey and New York for the past nine years, and in 2018, with her partner Neil, they established Biscuit Wood Farm in Upper Schoharie County, New York, on a 50-acre former dairy. They grow cut flowers, raise egg layers on pasture, breed red wattle pigs, and milk dairy goats for a small-scale soap enterprise. Meg believes collaborative farming is the future, and she is involved with her regionally-based collaborative, the 607 CSA. She's here to share more about her journey. Welcome, Farmer Meg. Thanks for having me. So, I just described some of the more like bullet point resume entries that a person would describe their life as. What does this actually look like? What do you actually do, Meg? Well, 
I have pretty high energy and a profound desire to learn and spend time with people. And so it's hard for me to just like commit to just doing one thing all the time. So I try to do a little bit of everything. I feel like I've learned a lot through um, a varied agricultural experience. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's from starting beekeeping in Brooklyn and keeping a backyard garden there to running a productive um, CSA farm on the Jersey Shore. It's, you know, it's been a pretty wild ride, um, but I feel like I've gained so much knowledge from that. And um, now that we finally have our own place, I'm able to put some of that experience into building something that's a little more long-term and, and lasting. Where are you physically located right now as you speak to us? I'm at our farm, Biscuitwood Farm. Mm-hmm. It's um, in Schoharie County in upstate New York. It's a, uh, one of the smallest counties in New York, and it's it's not a very trendy place at all. It's a lot of dairy farms in various uh, stages of decay. And so um, it's a really beautiful place, really interesting, very challenging in some ways. But uh, I feel like we landed in a perfect in a perfect place for us. So when you say we and when you say us, who is the Biscuit Wood Farm team there? It's me and who, and I basically focus on farming full time. Mm-hmm. And then my partner, Neil, who is a weekend warrior and he works in IT during the week. He gets to work from home remotely, which makes, you know, makes all this possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've got a diversified income stream, which also takes a certain degree of stress mm-hmm. off of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. The farm, Biscuitwood Farm, what is it as a farm and how big is it? And describe your like, USDA zone and your, your broader environmental, you know, bioregion. Our zone is zone 5B. Uh, okay. And so half of the season we can grow stuff, half mm-hmm. of the season we can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a pretty significant um sort of adjustment for me uh, after being in New Jersey on the shore in zone 7A, 7B actually. Um, But um, our growing conditions are actually, they're really challenging. We grow beautiful grass, really amazing grass. So it's really like primo real estate for raising animals. But it's very difficult to grow crops. We have really heavy clay soil with like lots of boulders and rocks. We're basically in in a mountain valley between the Adirondacks and the Catskills. So mm-hmm. we've got all of that, all of that sort of rock matter that sort of sl- slid down the mountains over you know many many years. So it makes it difficult to um, to cultivate sometimes, and and you know it takes a long time to build up soil. Yeah. So take us back a little bit before we get deeper into all of the hats you wear um, in this work that you're doing. Uh, where were you born and raised and who were the the people and the plants and the places that grew you into a person um, that would start on a journey like this? And then we'll kind of talk about the journey before we get to this current vision of it. Sure. Um, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland in the city um, to two young working class parents. My dad worked in um, in a steel mill and my mother, uh, she just worked 
odd jobs, very working class family. Um, I went to city schools, lived a city life, which, you know, I love. I still have um, great affinity for urban places. Um, and then in like maybe when I was about five or six years old, my parents ended up divorcing and the summers were spent at my family's farm in, um, in rural Virginia outside of Lynchburg. So as my mother started working more, she needed to be able to like send us someplace where we would be looked after and family members in Virginia had offered to, you know, bring us in and, and, you know, let us visit in the summertime when we weren't in school. So, uh, my family in Virginia, you know, they, they basically were living the life that I'm living now. They, hmm. you know, they grew a lot of their own food. They raised livestock, they gardened, they grew crops. They mostly, um, focused on grains, um, feed grains, mm -hmm. tobacco. Mm -hmm. They grew a lot of tobacco and, um, and, you know, hay. And so, you know, my visits there were pretty formative for me. Yeah. Um, it was a place where I felt very safe, very loved and looked after. Um, I developed an appreciation for nature that I didn't really have an opportunity to develop in the city. Um, so, you know, as I, you know, as I grew up in Baltimore, I realized that I kind of felt this need for parts of that in my life. And so, you know, I've, maintained a garden in my first, my first apartment, my first house had a, a garden space. And so I tried my hand at gardening. I was terrible at it, um, <laughs> but I loved it so much that I just like kept doing it. Yeah. So did you go on to school and study in this area or how did you get to that first house and little garden where you were new as a gardener, not terrible as a gardener? You know, I, I never felt that college was something that was like very accessible to me. Mm -hmm. It never felt like my path to sort of pursue higher edu edu education. I mean, most of my friends have, and in some way I feel like it was probably like a good move on my part because um, many of my friends are really struggling with a lot of debt right now. And it's, it's like prohibitive for them, like to pursue a lot of their dreams with this debt hanging over their head. Yeah. Um, so I mostly just focused on like working jobs where I could be creative and felt sort of st like stimulated. So, you know, I, Baltimore has lots of small business. And so like I worked for some small businesses in my early 20s, like boutiques and things like that, where I would like help them to merchandise. I would go on buying trips with them. You know, so like I was involved in mostly in children's fashion for the, like the first five or six years of my 20s. And it's actually what gave me the opportunity to move to New York City. I had actually met um, a clothing designer on a buying trip from Baltimore, like up to like the trade shows in, in New York. And I met one of the designers and hit it off with them and they had offered me a job. And so I moved up and which was like one of the best decisions I've ever made. Huh. I really, I'm living in New York city, like though it seems like such a leap from where I am now, it was for me, like a, a, an amazing opportunity to like build community, learn how to be around people, like different types of people, challenging people and like put together 
functional, strong relationships with this sort of strange mix of individuals. I really loved it. I miss it a lot. I'm glad that I left, but I think about it all the time. New York City is a really terrific place. Yeah. And I'm loving listening to you talk about that description of this section of your journey because it illuminates some of the, you know, um, areas that are going to come to fruition in your in your story as, as they come along. And this biodiversity of people being um, an important part and that small business management and creative work are all, you know, they come to play as they are your education as you're moving along and kind of honing some of your, your goals and, and visions, I think. So, were you living in Brooklyn at that time? I was. Yeah. And so talk about your your work and how it deepened there because, um, for instance, as you and I noted in our correspondence, uh, you know, one of your names in an online space is uh, Brooklyn Homesteader. Talk yeah. about Talk about how like these different aspects of biodiversity of people and of plants and how you make a living in this world kind of started to come together and coalesce there. Yeah, I mean, my migration to New York City was like sort of a complicated one. It was driven sort of by a desire to 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 sort of seek out something else for myself after living in Baltimore for most of my life, but also by like the big heartbreak of my life. I mean, everyone has it and sometimes it drives people to do stupid things and sometimes it drives them to do like something that totally changes their life. And so I wanted to start over and I got there and I threw myself into the lifestyle of like being like a young person in New York City. And it was really great. It was really fun. Went out to eat all the time, spent lots of money. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) But, But then like after about a year of living there, I, it started to feel really hollow. And I just felt like there had to be something more to it or that there could be more to it. And one day I was, (laughs) I was standing in line in Whole Foods on the Lower East Side. And I had my like $25 box of like food bar stuff in my hands. And I was in line getting ready to pay. And I looked over to like a row of magazines and like the one of the newest issues of edible manhattan was Ah. on the rack and i picked it up because it's free and i love free things so i picked it up and i started flipping through while i was waiting in line and one of the first pages that i opened up to was an article about people breaking the law to keep bees in green spaces in New York City. And I had been interested in beekeeping for a few years and I had even taken a class on it, but it just never like coalesced. It never came together for me in Baltimore. And so I got really excited. And it just like to me was it was a glimpse into like what was actually possible, things that seemed really radical and that I never never would have considered were now completely within the realm of possibility. So I ran back to my office and I sat down and I started talking to my boss about all this stuff. And he was like, that sounds crazy, but it sounds like it would make you happy. So give it a try. 
And so I started attending the meetings and that spring I set up the first beehives on my rooftop and the apartment that I was living in, the building had been sold. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) this is not, this is not good. Um, But the people who bought it were young. They were my age. They were like two friends that bought it and they were like, we're going to give you access to the backyard. Yeah. Keep the bees. That's great. We love bees. Let's do, let's like do something really great back there. And so (laughs) it was like all the, all the stuff that I felt like I needed, like the things that I wanted in my heart were like just converged in that one place. And yeah, it just gave me a chance to start thinking differently about what my experience could be there. So, okay, so tell us about how that backyard progressed and what, how did you come to writing the book and, and tell us about the rest of those years and, and how they evolved? Well, the backyard, the backyard garden was, you know, first and foremost, it was a backyard. And to, to any like Brooklynite, any New York, like any New Yorker, to have a backyard is like the... Like it's the greatest luxury. Yeah, yeah. So, so we just spent a lot of time back there. The garden was awful. It was like a ter- <laughs> it was a terrible garden. We really tried. We built these big raised beds. Like we filled them with like tr- we trucked in soil. It was a big production, and we really tried. But it was shady, and like there wasn't good airflow. So it was just like nothing, nothing totally thrived. You know, we could grow salad greens and things like that. And at that point, we had the garden. That was a thing. The bees were like the big thing yeah. for me. What year was this, Meg? This was 2008. Okay. So the bees were the big thing for me. Um, I think so much of keeping bees for me was about thrusting myself into like this big unknown this thing that like was sort of frightening to me mm-hmm. and then and then realizing once I was in the middle of it that like that there was there was like just so much beauty and um it was just such a visceral experience that like I I I don't know that I could really describe it to anyone who's not like been in a beehive, in an active beehive. It's, it's completely transformative. Um, and the fact that I was doing it in the city felt like sort of rebellious and really fun. It was a fun thing to talk about with people. And that was the thing that I didn't expect is that by keeping bees, this thing that I wanted to do for myself, I was opening up all of these like uh, all these paths to other people who were also interested in it and and also just thought it was wild and um a little nutty and like wanted to know what would motivate someone to do something like that and so because i had landlords that were really supportive i was able to talk about it more freely since it was still illegal Mm -hmm. my neighbors were also quite kind you know I lived in a neighborhood with a lot of Polish immigrants and they didn't seem as like as shocked or um, confused by someone keeping bees. They were like, oh, yeah, my uncle back in Poland keeps bees like they they had a degree of familiarity with it that made them like less reactive to it. Mm -hmm. 
So I was in a place where I felt comfortable talking about it. Like it wasn't going to get me kicked out of my apartment. Right. So I started talking to people and then I started getting emails from press being like, we want to come see your bees. (laughs) Like we want to write about you and your bees. And I'm just like, oh boy, this is a lot. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Meg Pasca is a farmer in upstate New York, having grown into this adult life via urban beekeeping in Manhattan and then floral and market gardening on the Jersey Shore. We'll be right back. Stay with us for more of Farmer Meg's Garden Journey. Hey, it's Jennifer. When I heard Meg say, quote, to have a backyard in Brooklyn is the ultimate luxury, end quote. I thought, oh my word, is that true? No matter where you live, this is more true than ever. And everyone deserves access to some scale or version of a backyard. If you have one, maybe consider how you help others gain access to one as well. From well-kept and funded public parks and supported community gardens to supporting black sanctuary gardens or land access and reparations for indigenous and black gardeners and farmers to those same kinds of programs for young farmers. We all benefit from safe, open access to healthy land and land-based relationships. In the episode notes this week, I will make sure to list some of the links I know of for supporting such initiatives on access to land this week. But I will also post this on Instagram and ask that if you have links you would like to share, please post them there. You are always welcome to email me with such resources, and I will share them forward in next week's podcast or next week's notes or social media. And for all of you undertaking the Stillness Every Day Challenge I put out a few weeks ago, how is it going? Are you still at it? I am. And this week, I incorporated a night under the stars in the garden in hopes of viewing the Perseids. I'll report back next week with the results. We're back now with Meg Pasca, also known as Farmer Meg, of the collaborative, regionally based, and diversified homestead endeavor known as Biscuit Wood Farm in upstate New York. As we come back, Meg describes the journey from her Brooklyn homestead years to her land-based, diversified family homestead years. Okay, first of all, why was it illegal to keep bees in New York? I've never understood this. I I lived in the city uh, in the 80s for just a year and a half before having complete green withdrawal and having to leave. But um, So I've never understood why it was illegal. And then I want to ask a few questions about the just the practicalities of keeping bees in a city. So, okay. Sure. Well, the reason bees were uh, – honeybees were um, – were restricted in New York City. It, they were just like they were lumped in with a lot of other wild and exotic animals that were banned within city limits. So it was like just a list okay. of of animals that were just like not permitted within city limits. Okay. Okay. So that's why they were 
that's where they, why they were banned. And they are no longer banned. There are yeah. now like open, happy communities of beekeepers. Okay, the practicalities. You're in a garden space, an outdoor space where you've already said there's, you know, limited airflow and limited sunlight and you, you know, could grow greens but not much else. How did you make sure your bees got enough to eat, Meg? Well, they were they were on the roof, so they got okay. lots of sun and lots of um, air. lots okay. of air, which is important. Um, but a, a major nectar source for bees in urban environments are trees. So trees in the early part of the season, and New York City has a lot of them. And in the fall, like the late summer and fall, there are a lot of weeds that grow all over the place, like abandoned lots, roadsides, along the highways and stuff, they'll fly a significant distance to get um, to a food source. Parks have clover and stuff growing. So there, there's, there's certainly forage out there for them. Did you ever have any concerns about the uh, pollutants that might end up in the honey? And did you ever test for that? Like, how do you, uh, how do you handle that in a city? I mean, not that they wouldn't have lots of pollutants, especially in wide open agro-industrial chemical farmland, but how do you handle that in a in an urban environment, Meg? Well, we provided um, water sources for our bees, um, just so that they weren't like drinking out of puddles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we did send we sent our honey away to be tested once, just out of curiosity. It's a bit expensive to test for um, chemical contaminants. Mm-hmm. So um, it came back and there were really low, there was like no lead or anything like that and like no noticeable um, levels of contaminants in the honey. This is not to say that it couldn't happen. I mean, I think that if you're keeping bees in an urban environment and you really want to be mindful of purity, it's probably a good idea to like budget for testing every season because they forage differently every year. And so you never really know where they're going to where they're going to forage and whether or not it's um, it's going to be a problem. But I think also most toxins in the ground, they get locked up in the foliage of the plant and are usually not taken up by like the flowers or the fruit of the plant. So fortunately, like uh, the plants tend to filter out some, some of the potential um, like soil-based contaminants. Okay, that makes sense. Did you have any issue with colony collapse in yours? How many hives did you have at your most? The most hives I've had at any given moment were about 13. Wow. And we I mean it's hard it is it can be difficult to keep hives alive especially if you are it's a complicated sort of issue. Like if you're buying southern bees every year or if you're like if you're getting bees that are not adapted to a certain um, method of treatment, mm-hmm. which is to say they're not getting um, applications of like fungicides in the winter and they're not being treated with miticides and, um, you know, they're not adapted with like sort of hygienic behavior, the grooming behavior that helps to like remove some of the varroa mites that naturally exist within the hive. If if you get bees that are are not suitable for that sort of treatment, then they will die. Um, otherwise, you have to you, you have to treat bees in the way that is like typically sort of um, prescribed, which is um, a lot of management, a lot of management. 
a lot of inter a lot of intervention. And so I don't really like to do that. So, you know, I would lose hives and then I would split them in the spring and multiply um, my bee yard out again. And, um, and most of the time it worked out and sometimes it didn't. So you have to get kind of comfortable with the idea of like losing hives uh, in the spring. And that, of course, then allows you to self-select those that are adapted with that resilience built into the colony. Am I right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this is one of the great dilemmas of of gardening or, you know, keeping animals of any kind is that it's life. So there's death involved. And that is hard and messy, but also part of the whole cycle that compels us so wholeheartedly. Um, it's very, yeah, it's very difficult to take the long view of uh, dealing with um, the betterment of your animal's lives. I mean, the animal that's in front of you, the living thing that's in front of you is precious to you. It's the thing that you've spent time with. It's hard to let something like that die or to call it from um, the genetics of, of your herd or flock or colony or bee yard or what have you for the betterment of any animals that are born in the future on your farm. That's a really difficult thing to do. It's um, it's a hard ask <laughs> for people who are maybe new to it. Um, but in the, in the long run, it ends up being for the best. Yeah. But no, I, I can't imagine the heartbreak of the first time you encountered uh, a hive that had died. Yeah, it was awful. It was awful. You're so... It, beekeeping is such a it's such a physical thing it's such a sensory thing when when you open up a hive the first thing that you feel is this like rush of warm sweet air that comes out of the top of the hive and when you open up a dead hive and it's just like a cold hollow crack of like the top and then like this smell of like kind of fermenting death it's really it's shocking it feels terrible um yeah i I don't like that very much. <laughs> no, but that that vibration of a living hive that you were talking about uh, right in the beginning of describing this section of your journey, you know, it is that sort of call and response of one life to another life that is part of why we love. It's a huge part of why we love these kinds of literally creative activities yeah i mean it's a it's um it's direct information that proves that we are not separate <laughs> from nature at all we are absolutely connected and intertwined with it yeah so tell us about how you then moved from that life there to and did you go from there to the farm in upstate new york or how did you get from there to where you are now, Meg? Oh no, <laughs> it, was, it was it was not a direct path at all. Um, after Brooklyn, or while I was actually in Brooklyn, I spent um, a summer going back and forth from the city to a friend's farm in the Catskills. It's sort of like a farm cooperative, like very loose, like strange, wonderful place where a bunch of New York City people would sort of come back and forth and do some farming and 
harvest some vegetables and bring them down to the city and drop them off at their friends' restaurants. And I went and I worked there for a summer. And it was definitely not like working at like a working farm. It was very loose. Um, but that experience for that one summer while I was still in Brooklyn completely got me hooked. I was like, this is, I want to learn more. Yeah, bees are great, but bees are just part of the big picture. Like, I want it all. Like, I want to create a place where, like, the bees can live there and pollinate crops and, like, forage off of things that I grow. And I want to, like, go out and forage for, like, mushrooms and herbs. And I want to get milk from down the road and make cheese. I want to do it all. Like, that was the moment where I was like, this is great. Like, this is what I want. And so I came back to Brooklyn at the end of the season. And I was like, how do we make this happen? We can't buy a farm. We definitely don't have enough money for it. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I know how to (laughs) sort of grow some vegetables. But how do we go from this to like having a place of our own. And so the way that I typically um, operate when I want something is just to talk about it incessantly. (laughs) And so for like the entire time I was farming up in the Catskills, I would come back and hang out with my friends and I would just talk and talk and talk about how I was going to have a farm one day. And eventually someone called me and they were like, hey, you know, our friend, Randy in Portugal, he got asked by so-and-so if he could come and farm at so-and-so's place. And well, he's never coming back to the United States. So you should talk to them because they want someone to come and farm on their property. And I was like, cool, where's this property? And they were like, New Jersey. And I was like, (laughs) at that point, at that point, (laughs) at that point, I didn't know anything about New Jersey. I had driven on the turnpike and, you know, I could always hear people sort of like, you know, throwing shade on New Jersey whenever I was like in the city. But I I reached out to um, these folks in New Jersey who ended up becoming good friends and they had inherited a property from their grandmother right on the shore in a beautiful part of New Jersey. Um, it was 20 acres with a little gardener's cottage. In the main house, they did yoga retreats on the weekends, and they wanted someone to come and farm there so that the farm and the yoga retreats could sort of collaborate. They could get food from the farm to cook during the retreats and the um, the attendees could come out and help with farm farm work so we ended up moving there and it was only an hour from the city so neil could continue to do his work and um we got there and my friend michael meyer who was a farm manager at brooklyn grange he moved to our farm for a year and he helped me set the whole thing up we like we hit the ground running. We got an acre in cultivation. We got fencing set up. We built buildings for our goats. We got goats. <laughs> uh, we built a chicken coop for 150 chickens. We, I mean, it was in, it was insane. I mean, your 20s are such an amazing time. It's like <laughs> late 20s, early 30s. You can do anything. Yeah. Like, you really can. Like, there's nothing that seems impossible. 
especially when you've got friends who are willing to pitch in to help. So we all sort of descended on this place. And to the owner's credit, they like they kept the place pinned tight, but they were, you know, so great about letting us just come there and just change the like landscape of that place so radically. We ended up going to a brewery down the road um, and realized that the people who ran it were our neighbors. And we were like, we're going to do a CSA. And they were like, that's amazing. Okay, great. How can we help you get CSA members? And they like put flyers all over the brewery and they like let all their friends know. And we got 36 members that first year and we hadn't even like cultivated grown anything right oh wow what that is a great apprenticeship year story meg that is awesome that is the universe saying meg this is where you're supposed to be it could have gone so badly (laughs) it could have gone so badly but it didn't it didn't it was like everything i mean first of all we were like dealing with this like beautiful sandy loam coastal soil it was a dream and it had never been cultivated before. So we turned it over and we had all that like locked up nitrogen in it. So it, we, everything that we planted in there was like super beautiful happy. and perfect. Yeah. There was like no insect damage. It was just like, I still feel like, and I, so I farmed there for like five years and we had a CSA every year and it got bigger. And then we started doing farmer's markets and selling to restaurants. It was just like really amazing, but I've never grown vegetables as beautiful as the vegetables that <laughs> I grew there. And the tomatoes were, they were so good. Jersey tomatoes, like they have a reputation for a reason. They're very, very good. Something about the climate there is just like, they grow a good tomato. Okay, good. Meng Pasca is a farmer in upstate New York, having grown into this adult life via urban beekeeping as a young adult in Manhattan, and then floral and market gardening on the Jersey shore, which was a worthwhile apprenticeship. A new mother since we recorded our conversation. Despite everything in our world right now, she believes in an abundance mindset and the generosity a garden can grow in us. We'll be right back. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, towards the very end of my conversation with Meg, she articulates how when she first determined to align her livelihood with her love of cultivating bees and then plants and then the land, she found that in monetizing it, she also began to hoard it and guard it. Hmm. This is such a dilemma, isn't it? I feel this hint of worry and anxiety all the time. To write about gardening, to talk about gardening, to ask for money in support of this work, it can often feel like I am sullying my beloved garden and my love of gardening. I have to pay really close attention to this feeling when it comes up. I have to check in with the feelings and sometimes I actually have to reset course to make sure I am emphasizing in my actions and intentions, in my words and my spoken audio to you, that the most generous and generative and shared experience of the garden and why I feel it's important to talk more and more openly about the power of it, that that is always at the baseline. I often get the most moving notes and letters from listeners out there, from you, and these remind me why I do what I do and why I encourage you all to keep doing what you're doing. 
I wanted to share with you a note I received recently from a sister listener. You have no idea what notes like this mean to me, and I take them as positive affirmations from the universe, just like every other seed in my garden. Here's what the listener wrote. Quote, I've been contemplating and now planning the next phase of my professional life for a couple of years. I'm on a project that ends in 2023, and so I am starting to feel the pressure to get it figured out. My new venture is a significant departure from my current role as a research manager in behavioral child health. I was especially inspired by your interview with Naomi Sachs, she goes on, and it was the first time I saw an opportunity for my varied interests in health and the natural world and my experience in research and finance to potentially come together. More recently, your comments, she continues to write, during the interview with Colleen Southwell about finding your calling and allowing it to be the right time, really resonated with me. It helped me to acknowledge that I have been doing the work and am even more committed to my vision. It was also a great reminder of the importance of finding mentors and others who will encourage you to stay true to your vision when all of your doubts and insecurities get to be too much. She finishes up, I know that sometimes when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and speak about these things, it's hard to know if we're just speaking into the void or if they connect with anyone. I wanted to let you know, she writes, that many of the people you have interviewed and your courage to share your own reflections and struggles has meant a lot to me in my own growth, and I will continue to listen and appreciate these moments as I continue in my struggle for growth and change. End of her letter. I just can't tell you what that means to me. Thank you all for listening. We are doing what we're meant to be doing out there in our gardens in whatever funny, messy, not perfect way we're doing it. We are meant to be growing the world we want to see. We're back now with Meg Pasca, also known as Farmer Meg. As we come back, Meg describes settling in at Biscuitwood with her partner Neil after their years of floral and market gardening. As with most transition stories, this one includes the reality that transformation often involves breakage and loss in order to achieve the next phase. Why did you leave the like dreamland of, of the New Jersey shore? Tell us how you got to Biscuitwood Farm. Yeah, it yeah. was a it was a very difficult decision for us. Mm. Uh, but the owners were um, they were starting to um, work out the process of putting the place on the market, and we were like, "What do we do?" The infrastructure that we had invested in at that point was starting to fail. It was like after five years, it was starting to sort of fall apart a little bit because we didn't invest in the, like the permanent stuff and we were like what do we do do we do we invest in this stuff all over again or do we try to find a place where we can really do this 
And so, yeah, it was a very difficult decision, but we started looking. It took a long time to find the right place, but eventually we, I mean, we looked all over upstate New York. I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to farm up here. The landscape up here reminds me a lot of Virginia. Mountains feel very comforting to me. I just, you know, you feel drawn to something and you know that nothing else will do. I lived near the ocean for six years and I didn't really care for it that much. Everyone else is like, I'm an ocean person. This I can't imagine living anywhere else. I couldn't imagine living anywhere except like near mountains. So we looked up here. We looked everywhere. We found places that were in various stages of disrepair, anything that we could afford. So there'd be like a gorgeous house and the property was just like totally neglected and a barn that was falling down or a beautiful barn and a house that was just like a mess and like infested with mold and stuff. So it was very hard for us to find a place that really hit the mark. We really needed to move someplace and get started right away. We were not trying to like spend two or three years making improvements. So... I had been following Sarah Ryhannon from Saipua on Instagram for a while, and we had some correspondence about livestock guardian dogs. And her, like one of her livestock guardian dogs, her Maremma Blondie, is actually the mother of our two livestock guardian dogs. So on a trip up here to look at um, a couple of farms, I was like, let's go see, let's go visit Sarah and let's go see Blondie. Um, and so we went to visit her and while we were on the way, I was like on my phone looking at real estate listings in the area here. It was an area that like, it didn't occur to me to even look. And there were two places that looked really promising. One ended up being way out of our price range. And then the other place was this place. <laughs> so we drove by it right on the way to Sarah's place. And as soon as I got back home, I, I booked an appointment to look at it. It had everything. It had like fenced in pastures. It had a brand new barn. It had a nice farmhouse that we could grow into. It was really special. <laughs> like I, I was, I think the moment I saw it, I kind of knew it was going to be um, a really good option for us. And so we moved up here two years ago in the dead of winter. Um, and we've been here like just trying to keep warm and, and farm the best that we can ever since. So why why biscuit wood? Biscuit wood. Neil was reading. So uh, we heat with wood most of the time. And we were, I found this, there's a used bookstore in town. And I found this book on heating with wood. And we were flipping through it. And Neil had said, oh, you know what? There's a section on stoves. I was reading it. And did you know that? The, the cut of wood, like the exact size wood for like heating up a wood stove to like cook a batch of biscuits, like it's called biscuit wood. And I'm like, that's really cute. I really like that. And I was just like, that's exactly kind of how we do things here. Too. <laughs> so like We do just enough to like to get it done. And um, there's no flourish. It's just like very straightforward. And I just that that struck me as the name. I just felt like it was, it, it felt very appropriate mm -hmm. and it has a nice ring to it, I it think. It has a very nice ring to it. So 
you've been there two years and you already have multiple hats that you're wearing as a homesteader. Tell us about the branches of your work there. And and are I, I'm not sure if you are still involved at uh, World's End or not. And so just tell us about the different like variations on your work theme there, Meg, now. Well, so much of being here has been about trying to get a grasp on what the community here is like. I think when we were farming in New Jersey, we sort of like went in there all gung-ho and we're like, we're going to do this. No one's going to stop us. This is just how it is. And that worked. It was fine, but it was also incredibly stressful and a lot of work. And I just kind of wanted to take a different approach this time where I could sort of sit back and like observe the land, see what it was like. Cause I mean, I knew it was going to be challenging, like see, watch the community, see what other farms are doing here. Because I knew that we weren't in like an affluent coastal like town. So customers were going to be a big issue. And so the past two years have been focused on mostly like trialing things and um, working with other farms in the area, getting a sense of like what works, what doesn't, um, how we can collaborate with other farms. It really seems with rural communities that collaboration is really the future of like getting products from places like this to a market that can support it. So, you know, I've been working with Star Out Farm and the 607 CSA, which are connected. They're also in the northern Catskills, not far from my farm. So they grow vegetables and then they partner with a bunch of different farms and they pay a trucking company to take everything down to CSA members and to restaurants and stuff like that. And then, you know, I was working with World's End Farm um, this year. And most mostly in a capacity is like their main grower. They have like small, small garden spots, but they really just like needed to maximize that space and like learn how to really be efficient with it and just like pack it out and make it work for them. And those were mostly uh, cut flowers. Is that right? Cut flowers. And then I managed their their kitchen garden so that um, they're, they do residencies. And so to make sure that the people who are coming are just like eating all this like vibrant, amazing food, we had like nice packed out kitchen gardens full of all sorts of tasty greens and things like that. So that, I mean, having strong working relationships with the people that are near me um, feels like a big piece of the puzzle for me. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm sort of like wrapping up like a, a kind of a an expedition where I've just been like sort of like figuring out where everything is and what it all does and how it all fits together. And I'm going into this season, like I feel like I'm walking through a, like a new door where on the other side, it's like figuring out how our farm can now connect to these other places to like make this um, – make this region even like more vibrant and strong and resilient. And uh, that feels really important to me. The work of like community seems equally as important, as important to me as growing mm-hmm. a, a product. Yeah. Probably more so. So that, you know, speaks on so many levels actually to that idea of collaboration and, 
uh, being a part of this bigger whole in the the collaborative of farms creating CSA supplies that then go to the bigger populations in urban areas. Um, is that the same as the, um, I forget what you call it, it was such a great name, the community calorie crop participant? Or is that more of a personal level? Because I've heard of a, well, I'm just going to let you describe that. Describe those two different um, collaborations, Meg. <laughs> sure. So um, we actually, there's like a, a fun little group I actually, this this is not something I've talked about very much, but it's something that I'm really excited by. There are a lot of people up here that don't farm as a business. They have land, they have barns, they've got livestock. They like farming is like a secondary aspect to creating like a family life up here, like creating a quality of life that feels good to them. And so many of those people don't have the experience of like, growing a productive crop or doing any subsistence growing, but there's a lot of interest in it. And we may, we have made a lot of friends in our area, like quite close by. There's like a lot of like young families that are sort of in various stages of delving into this, um, this kind of lifestyle. And so we started getting together for dinners in the wintertime and, um, everyone comes over to a different farm and helps out with like bigger projects. And another part of um, of the whole thing was about like sort of collaborative growing and figuring out a way to, on a small scale, without crews, without like the goal of selling to a market, produce the food that we need to subsist through much of the year. And we discuss also parts of how like certain things are probably not necessarily worth growing um, because we can get them from neighboring farms uh, like at a at a good price. Um, but certain things that are like special that no one else is really sort of tapping into or things that we sort of want for ourselves that we have a hard time finding. Um, and also just like things like grains. So we have some bakers in the group and stuff. And so we have been sort of coordinating bigger plantings of calorie crops and stuff around our farms so that like we could share seed, we can share harvests and um, share experience too. I mean, we have a few friends that work with draft horses and some people that just do everything by hand. And then some friends that have a BCS. <laughs> so it's like, we're sharing information, we're sharing resources, we're sharing efforts, and then we're getting together and enjoying all of it together, which is like what it's all about. That's what it's all about. What is a BCS? Yeah. BCS is a, it's a walk behind tractor okay. that you that has different implements. They're like very fashionable. Like all of the young market farmers use them. Okay. They, it, it basically replaces like a larger tractor. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I love this idea. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the importance of that, Meg? I think there's certainly a lot to be gained from having a, a practice where a person sort of interacts with the natural world. But growing food is for people. And I think that if if by growing food, it can allow you to connect with people in a way that's meaningful. I mean, I think that you're you're hitting all the marks. 
I think the, when I first started gardening, it felt like a very private um, practice for me. And as I continued like working in this way, I, like there would be more abundance and I felt the need to try and monetize it. And then when like through monetizing it, uh, I felt like I hoarded it a little bit. And now I just feel like gardening should really like inspire a sense of generosity in people, you know? And I think the thing that I regret most about my experience is that I didn't allow myself to like be generous as often as I probably should have. Um, I felt like I, I've, I've received so much in my life and this one thing that people are so hungry for, um, I should have been like so happy to share it with people who needed it. And, and I didn't. And I just hope that people that pursue this for themselves realize that like it's it's for everyone and that not everyone has access to it. And if in any way you can share the wealth that comes with it, that you'll feel inclined to in whatever way that you can. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. Um, I appreciate your incredible generosity of spirit and thoughtfulness in this work and speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Farmer Meg is a homestead educator, a CSA grower, a community calorie crop participant, and the author of Rooftop Beekeeper. Meg has been farming in New Jersey and New York for close to a decade. And just two years ago, with her partner Neil, they established Biscuit Wood Farm in Upper Schoharie County, New York, on a 50-acre former dairy. They grow cut flowers, raise egg layers on pasture, breed red wattle pigs, and milk dairy goats for a small-scale soap enterprise. Meg believes collaborative farming is the future. Since we spoke, Meg and Neil have welcomed baby Graham into the fold to add even more complexity and joy to their collaborative life. I caught up with her by phone just before the arrival of Graham, and she reiterated for me the importance of fighting for access to land for all and allowing the abundance of this garden work we love to continue to teach us the beautiful lessons of real abundance and generosity, both of which are measures of wealth to be shared lavishly. Join us again next week when, at this well-aged moment in our season here in the Northern Hemisphere, we explore some thoughts on aging well as gardeners. Tony Gattoni, Master Gardener, shares more with us on her research into adaptive gardening. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To see many photos of Biscuitwood Farm, including flowers, goats, baby chickens, and baby humans, check out the episode notes for this week's show on cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the monthly newsletter, and consider making a donation in support of this Cultivating Place work. Thank you, as always, for your collaboration and listening. 
Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.